Cool. Thanks, Jeanette. Good morning, everybody. And um, yeah, it's great to be back from holidays. I just had the last um, four weeks off since we had a little baby girl, Allegra, which has been really awesome. And um, yeah, it's just been so great being a part of a community of um, just support and, and prayer and love. And Tam and I have just felt so supported by everybody and just, yeah, really thank everybody uh, for your prayers that have been, um, yeah, really valued. And, and yeah, it's just been a really great time, and it's, it's also just been good to come back this week as well and have kind of a nice ease-in. We had one day in the office and then three days working from home, so it's like a bit of an ease-in this week as well. Um, yeah, we're going to come to this passage of Jesus, and um, this series we're going back into this week is called The Man. Um, we started it earlier in the year, back before Easter, and um, so if you weren't with us, the basic recap of the series is we're just teaching through uh, the book of Matthew, and this series is going through three chapters, chapters 11, 12, and 13. We're just getting towards the end of chapter 12, and it's called The Man because this, this section of Matthew is all about different responses to the man Jesus. People are kind of trying to work out who he is in these stories. And if you remember back earlier in the year, it started even with John the Baptist having some questions about who Jesus is, and um, other people sort of not being too sure, and it's sort of being in different groups. But increasingly, there being one group that's not just unsure about Jesus, but even opposed to him, and even starts to judge him quite strongly. And if you can remember back the last sermon we did, the passage just before this, Jesus did an amazing miracle, um, but the response was that he does his works by the power of evil. So the, the religious leaders are starting to make up their mind about Jesus and condemn him quite strongly already. So what we're doing today is we're going to look at this, another interaction between the religious leaders and Jesus and how he responds to them um, and their request particularly for a sign. It's, it's quite, he's stirring up lots of controversy um, in the things that he's doing, and he, this is a sort of a controversy around this request for a sign. So I might just pray, and then, then we'll just dig into the passage today. Yeah, we thank you, Father, for this day. Um, thank you for your presence with us. Uh, thank you for your word and, and your spirit. Um, thank you we can celebrate you um, when we gather. We can celebrate you when we're at home. Um, yeah, we just ask that you'd speak to us, you know, speak to our hearts by your words, Jesus. Um, you speak directly and you speak truth. And just ask that you'd help us to have ears to hear and, and just hearts to respond. And yeah, we just honor you in this time, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so we're going to look at Matthew 12, 38. It says this, Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, this is really interesting because just before this, the same people said that he's doing his works by the power of evil. <laughs> like just before that, they said this. And now they're saying, oh, actually, we want to see a sign from you. So it's kind of a strange request because he also just healed somebody who couldn't speak and couldn't hear. And Jesus has been doing lots of miracles, but they want him to do something even greater. They're saying, we want you to do some powerful sign. And and it seems strange because he's doing so many miracles. It seems likely, and some commentators think, maybe they're asking for some undeniable sign, something in the sky, something in the heavens. They just want him to do something really powerful that displays and gives authority to what he's saying. But we can see that they're not coming, even though they sort of say they're calling him teacher and it seems to be this request. This request is not coming from a place of faith. It's not coming from a place of seeking God and needing some more evidence 
like others in the Bible that seek God for more evidence, like Thomas after Jesus is risen, he needs some more evidence that he's seeking with this, this heart for God. They're not coming with that heart. And it's probably likely that even if Jesus did do a more powerful sign, that they would still use that against him. So Jesus sees beneath this and responds very directly to, what, to them. And I guess as we go through today, he's, he's pretty blunt and he's pretty strong with the Pharisees, and, and as Jesus speaks to them, we reflect on what he's saying, but also let it speak to us today as well. So he says to their request for a sign, Jesus says this, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus won't comply with their request. He won't give them the sign that they want. And he really says that their request and their desire for a sign says more about them than it does about him. They're not actually seeking God genuinely for a sign. He says they're wicked and adulterous. Their hearts are wanting to rebel against God because they're already rejecting him. And maybe even this sign or attempted sign is just another excuse to reject him. They're not seeking him from a place of faith. They're demanding a sign really as a way and another way to reject him. From this, we can see that actually demanding a sign from God may be a sign of the wrong heart. The issue with um, people making up their mind about Jesus and these, these leaders particularly, the issue is not that God has not given his stamp of approval to Jesus. It's not that there's not enough evidence for Jesus. It's not that God has not revealed himself enough. It's the issue is with their heart. It's with their posture before God and perhaps even their desire for some form of certainty. Um, but because you think, like, perhaps you've even sought God for a sign before. So perhaps you even think that's a reasonable thing to do. If God's God and if he wants me to believe him, well, he should do something to prove that he's there. Maybe that's sort of a reasonable thing to, to think. And he does give evidence that he's there. And he does sometimes honor people's requests for more evidence. But this is a bit different. This is really demanding that God conform to our standard of proof, is what they're doing. And if we demand that God conforms to our standard of proof in order to believe, who's in the position of power and control? Who's is it God or is it us? Demanding that he conform to our standard is actually just the wrong way to approach our God, a <laughs> powerful God. It's not a position of trust. It's not from a position of humility, but really a desire for certainty and control. And in this case, probably is an excuse to reject him even more. Really, the Pharisees' approach to Jesus is from a posture of pride. They're evaluating him. They're judging him. They're thinking he should conform to them. Uh, on pride and knowing God, C.S. Lewis says this, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man, a proud person is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. So Jesus won't do what they want. He won't conform to their requests for a sign, but he says that he will give a sign. There will be an exception, a sign. It's the sign of Jonah. In a sense, something similar that happened to Jonah will happen to Jesus. 
what, happened to Jesus, what happens to Jesus, Jesus' life, and what will eventually happen to him will be the sign. And we know it will be his death and his resurrection. So if anyone needs more evidence for who Jesus is, the ultimate evidence, the ultimate stamp of approval from God is that he rose from the dead. And there is historical evidence, there's, there's witnesses, there's a great amount of evidence that Jesus did rise from the dead, but it still requires faith. We still have to believe. We still have to trust him. And if we're not ready to do that, if we're demanding that he do a certain particular thing that conforms to us, perhaps the issue is actually our hearts. We're not yet ready to come with a heart that's humble and trusting. So these religious leaders, we can see, they're not struggling with their faith. They're really looking for ways to reject Jesus and not take him seriously. So as he goes on in his response, he gives them some warnings about the danger of what they're doing and really starts to highlight the fact that they're proud, and he starts to humble them with his response. This is what Jesus says next in verse 41. He says this, The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. This is actually a really interesting thing that Jesus says. Right? Jesus is comparing this generation, which is particularly reflective of the religious leaders, but we kind of see, in general, people are not accepting Jesus. And the religious leaders are really the, the main example of that. So he compares them to two stories of the people in the Old Testament who... God spoke to through a prophet and through a king, the Ninevites. And it's interesting because these people are not Israelites. They're not from the people of God. They're Ninevites is one example, which is foreigners, these people that Israel hated, barbarians, right? Yet when God spoke to them through Jonah, they repented. And, and Jonah just preached one line, right? Jonah, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. And they're like, oh, well, we need to listen. And they responded to Jonah's preaching. And then he talks about the queen of Sheba, the queen of the south, is this, again, not an Israelite, a foreigner from far away, yet when she heard of King Solomon that God had given him wisdom, she traveled a long way, she listened intently, and she actually honored God because of the wisdom. And Jesus is effectively saying, right, these are sort of outsiders, and they responded to God, God's revelation that they received. But now something greater than Jonah Something greater than Solomon is standing in front of these religious leaders and people responding to Jesus, and not just for a short time, he's teaching them for years, he's doing miracles, he's revealed himself, and yet they are not taking him seriously, and they're not responding from their heart. It's a pretty interesting response, because the Pharisees like, probably think that they're great, right? They're, they're proud. And Jesus says, effectively, well, no, these outsiders and these foreigners are more responsive to God than you are, and on the last day, they're going to condemn you. you. You think you're in a great place, but you're not even listening to God when he's right in front of you. They listen to the revelation they had, but you're rejecting this ultimate revelation of God and not responding. It's really interesting. It just made me sort of reflect on this this week. In fact, Jesus' response kind of says that the quality of heart response is more important than the quantity 
of revelation that someone has. The Pharisees were proud because they had lots of revelation from God. They were Israelites. They had the Old Testament. They had the law. They had the prophets. Um, they, had, um, they were Bible teachers. They were experts. They had religious authority and position. Yet Jesus is humbling them by saying they're actually worse off than outsiders and foreigners who respond to God from their heart. These guys have lots of this stuff, but they're actually not taking God seriously. This is a challenge for us as well, because we have lots of revelation from God. Um, Even as we read this story, it's easy for us to look back at the Pharisees and say, what are they doing? Like, like they're not taking Jesus seriously and sort of think, well, we know better and look down on them, because now we have the New Testament, and now we know who Jesus is, and we've seen his death and resurrection, But this challenges us and challenges me not to evaluate ourselves based on how much we know or the revelation we have or on how much we teach or how much we tell others, but actually on how much we're responding to God from our heart, how much is actually shifting and shaping our lives. It's a challenge to take Jesus and his word seriously enough and the scriptures seriously enough, not just to engage with them, but to call us to repentance to integrate them into our lives so they actually change us. It's a challenge to me uh, this week. I found this really challenging because it's much easier to teach the Bible and study the Bible and learn about it and read about it. It's much easier to do that than to respond to it from my heart and actually let it change me and shape me and integrate it into my life. And I suppose this is an invitation Uh, found for me, and I think for all of us, to not evaluate ourselves based on how much we teach or how much we share or how much we study or how much we know. That's not the thing to evaluate ourselves by. The thing to evaluate ourselves by is where we're actually at in our heart, how we're actually growing and responding to God. That's a humbling thing. Because often there's a disconnect. We know more, we understand more than we're actually living out. There's a disconnect and there's an invitation to humility and to address that um, as we grow. Because perhaps, again, this is the case, it's not, perhaps it's not pastors necessarily. Pastors, maybe religious leaders in our day, Bible teachers, may have knowledge, may teach lots and so forth, but perhaps somebody else who maybe doesn't have as much knowledge, maybe isn't in a religious role, isn't um, a leader, but maybe they actually look more like Jesus. Maybe they actually reflect and respond to God more in their heart, and that's actually more important. This is a humbling challenge uh, to me this week and and to us. So Jesus is warning the the Pharisees of of the seriousness, again, of not responding to him. And as he finishes this, it's interesting because he tells this story about demon possession, which is pretty intense. But the context of the whole interaction is that just before this, Jesus healed someone of demon possession who couldn't, he was mute and and deaf. Jesus healed them. And then there's this controversy around that. And now there's been this controversy around the sign. And this sort of section starts to end by Jesus again talking about demon possession as um, a bit of an insight into the spiritual world from Jesus, but also as an analogy as to what's actually going on in his generation. He says this, When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, this is insight into what demons say is intense, and then it says, I will return to the house I left. 
When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this generation. Effectively, Jesus is talking about what he's been doing, right? Jesus has been cleaning the house. Jesus has been going around, pushing back darkness, freeing people from evil, healing bodies, preaching the kingdom. Jesus has been cleaning the house. Jesus has been taking out the trash. That's what he's been doing. Yet, this generation of people who have been cleaned out, whose houses are being cleaned, Jesus is saying, in the end, are going to be worse off because although he's cleaning, they're not allowing him to occupy the house. They're not allowing him in. So in the end, they will be occupied by something else. And he says something much worse. Effectively, what we see here is that a heart unoccupied by Jesus will be occupied by something worse. Again, this is intense, but this is Jesus' words. He's direct um, in this challenge. And again, he's speaking to these leaders in their context, but we can sort of apply to us um, as you pull a principle as well. Because we probably like to think that, that we're just neutral, right? That we can just live neutral in our hearts. We can just live for ourselves. We are just free. We make our own decisions. The idea of being, having to, the idea of being possessed or occupied by something, that's a weird thing to think about. But what we see here is that actually our hearts are made to be filled with something. And actually, uh, we can't live empty. We have to be filled with something. And Jesus is effectively saying that if we're not filled with him, we'll be filled with something much worse. If we're not worshipping him, we're worshipping something much worse. We don't have a choice of whether to worship. We don't have a choice of whether to be occupied, whether or not to be occupied, but only what with. Um, Leslie Newbigin on this says this, if Jesus is not acknowledged as the Christ then other Christs, other saviors will appear. And Jesus says that they will be worse. And this is what happened to Jesus' generation. As you know, the story goes that they reject him and crucify him and reject Jesus as savior and his, his vision of the kingdom. And after Jesus is gone, the Jews pursue their vision of the kingdom, of, of revolting against Rome, which leads to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Much worse. Um, he's effectively saying they, they pursued their own vision of the kingdom, and it led to that destruction. So something has to fill our heart. Some vision, some passion, some cause, some saviour. And unless we seek for it to be Jesus, it will lead to be something else. So the challenge is for us not just to listen to him, or not just to associate with him, or not just to hear his words as a one-off thing, but to proactively let him take residency in our hearts, let him be the one that we're passionate about, that we are filled with, that we are occupied by. Um, Paul gives this um, encouragement again in Ephesians, it's similar. He says, don't get drunk with wine. Don't fill yourself that way. That leads to wild living. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
this choice of don't be filled with that, be filled with this. We must be filled with something. So I suppose the challenge this morning then um, is to ask ourselves, well, what are we being filled with? What is capturing my heart at the moment? What is on my mind? What is the thing that I'm driven by and excited by and occupied by at the moment? Is it Jesus? Is he the inoccupation of my heart or is it something else, maybe something worse? Um, this is a challenge for us all, I think, for me included, to be pursuing that it's Jesus who's in occupation, Jesus who's filling us, who's at the desire of our hearts. So as we're looking at Jesus' response to the Pharisees, which again, is pretty intense. There's opportunity not just to bag the Pharisees, but to reflect on, well, what does this mean in our lives, in our hearts? And although the word heart isn't in this passage at all, I think Jesus' response is all about the heart. And our response is to check our heart and how we're responding to him. Are we responding to him with a heart of faith, of repentance, of seeking to be filled and occupied by him? Because the scary thing about this passage is that Jesus is talking to highly religious people. Jesus is not warning outsiders. He's not warning people who don't care about God, who are just going about their lives. He's warning people who seem to be very, very interested in God. All of their life seems to be about God. And they are the ones that are missing him. They are the ones that are not taking him seriously. Whereas the examples he gives and other stories in the gospel of people that are taking him seriously and are responding to him are people who we would think are not interested in God or are outsiders. This is a warning not to think that just being religious, just being in church or outwardly Christian actually means we have a heart for God. These leaders, the Pharisees, effectively in the name of God are rejecting God in the face. It's possible to be religious and not know God. It's possible to be religious and proud and not humble. So the challenge for us is to continually come back to a place of evaluating our heart and our heart response to Jesus, not the externals, but the internals, and to continue to place Jesus in the highest place and take him with the utmost seriousness. Jesus' response shows that these leaders should be taking him incredibly seriously. And as we respond to Jesus and, and put our faith in him, the encouragement is to continue to take him seriously, to take his words seriously, his warnings seriously, not approach him and respond to him on our terms, but on his terms. And the point of this, again, is not to make us afraid um, or anxious about being a Pharisee or something like that. The point is to come back to placing him in that first place, to trust him, to place confidence in him, not in ourselves. Um, just as we finish, this um, just reminded me of this um, verses from Proverbs from King Solomon as a great encouragement as Jesus won greater than King Solomon, King Solomon said these words that really, I think, encourage us how to respond today. Um, he said this in Proverbs 3, 5 to 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. 
Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. So I'm going to pray as, as we respond. Um, maybe the band wants to come back up, and we're going to um, yeah, also sing a song, which I think is a great prayer um, for us to be singing and praying as we respond um, today. Um, again, this has been speaking to me this week. I hope that it's been speaking to you today as well. So let's pray, and then, then let's respond with our hearts. Lord, we just um, thank you, Jesus, for your words. I thank you for your truth. Um, how you speak truth, how you humble the proud. Um, God, we just thank you that you desire truth in the heart. And even as we come yeah, to church today, um, we just confess that yeah, we fall short of you and the response that you deserve. Um, we fall short of what we would like to be in our hearts towards you. Even this week, there's probably many times when we and I have not taken you seriously and given you the honor that you deserve. We confess, we fall short. We need you, Lord, to change our hearts. We need you to keep us responsive and humble and faithful. And we put our confidence in you, not in ourselves, Lord. We easily stray. We thank you that you direct and you speak. And sometimes your words cut, but they heal. We just ask that you'd give us hearts that honor you, that respond to you, that trust you, that love you, that are humble before you. Just pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.